Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I first stumbled across Adele Shaw, an internationally recognized mentor and trainer, through some thought-provoking Facebook posts, and then realized she also has a podcast called The Willing Equine. I was drawn to her ways of explaining things using a science-based approach and loved her focus on creating a positive relationship between horse and owner or any person involved in that horse's life. As someone who works an inherently dangerous job, holding up a hoof on a thousand pound animal where that hoof could potentially kill me at any moment, I am always looking at ways I can make sure that horse I am working on is as comfortable as possible mentally and emotionally. I asked Adele if she'd be willing to chat with me about ways an owner can prepare a horse to feel more comfortable and be more willing with their farrier appointments to help those appointments be more safe and enjoyable for everyone involved. So why don't we start and have you explain a little bit about your journey into working with horses and training specifically? Yeah, so that's a little bit of a wild ride. Um, I I uh, got into horses when I was around eight. Pretty much was born, though, loving horses. You know, every little horse girl's dream. And um, I ended up having a, a riding facility, like, right down the road that I could bike to. And I started taking lessons there and it was a hunter jumper facility and I did lots of competitions and owned horses and stuff but I started getting really interested in working with more quote problem horses during that time I'm not exactly sure what drew me to them other than you know maybe the, at the time I liked the challenge I'm not sure I used a very different training approach at the time things were a little bit different we didn't have social media really I didn't know all the things I know now and so I was very much going off of all my traditional training and what my trainers did I just did more of that and so I got into working with some of their rehab cases there was one horse in particular he had a interesting situation where he had flipped over at one point and fractured some parts of his back. That's what I remember. I don't, I was young at the time, so I don't remember the exact details. I just remember that he was put out to pasture for a while to recover and then brought back into training. And when they brought him back, he tended to run through fences and buck and bolts. And so he needed some more training, which looking back now, I realized there was a lot there going on like saddle fit. He didn't have proper, you know, physical work, meaning body work, et cetera. Um, but I really enjoyed working with this horse and then getting him to the point where he was safe for somebody else to lease and then go and compete on. And he started winning ribbons and stuff. It was so reinforcing for me. And I just really enjoyed that process of helping him. And that was kind of one of my real first experiences in that process of figuring out that this was what I wanted to do. Now, between then and now, there's lots of ups and downs. I actually, at one point, wasn't working with horses at all. I started working with dogs. I, at one point, wasn't working with animals at all. I was actually doing professional makeup artistry and also nannying. So I was working for a family. And I had a bunch of young kids and kind of stepped away from the horse world for a little bit. Didn't last very long, though. And I always had horses, my own personal horses, but I just wasn't looking at it from a professional perspective or working at it with it in a professional way. And then I got a horse at one point, her name was Tiger and she's, she was just pivotal in bringing me to where I am now. 
And she was so difficult to work with. She was supposed to be one of those husband safe, kid friendly, bomb proof, trail ride, whatever type horses. And she was anything but. And she really pushed me to start exploring other ways of working with horses. Now, throughout this whole time, I had explored natural horsemanship. I had explored really getting into different like biomechanics and different ways of keeping horses. So I had been learning throughout this whole time, just it all kind of played a a role here, but I had never looked into behavior and and behavioral rehab and working with trauma and all of that until Tiger. So she was kind of that final little piece of the puzzle that really pushed me into like, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. This is where I feel very at home. And I love working with horses from a behavioral perspective. And she really pushed me into learning more about horses and behavior and how past experiences really shape them and us and how we know so little as horse people, as far as reading body language and understanding a horse's brains work and how they see the world and how they perceive our actions and just all things that we do and don't do that help or harm them. Yeah. So that was kind of like my big step into the behavioral side of things was from my mare tiger really pushed me into that. She also was a rearer and a bucker and a bolter and it would take two hours to catch out of the pasture. And um, I have very distinct memories of like sitting in the saddle in the middle of the arena, just crying. Cause I was like, I don't know what to do with this horse. She's a mess and I can't sell her because she's dangerous and she'll end up nowhere good. I don't want to put her down, but I also can't keep her because she's dangerous. And at the time I was very convinced that horses had to have a job or a thing that they were providing us um, or else there was no point in having one. So my perspective has changed quite a bit since then. Yeah, so that's kind of the crash course on my history there. Yeah, and I it's funny how so many of us I feel like have that one horse that we can sort of tie to what shaped our like where we are now and how things have changed for us throughout our careers. Um and you know, obviously I I know you through your podcast and I've followed you a bit on um your website, your blog, social media. Um and I know that you uh spend a lot of time working within the realm of positive reinforcement. And before we start talking about training and how we can better prepare, you know, owners and how owners can better prepare horses for uh, hoof care appointments, I was wondering if you can sort of delve a little bit into the four quadrants of training and how you ended up gravitating towards the one you do use now. Yeah, so the four quadrants is we're talking about positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. And this is just one kind of lens to look at behavior through and what reinforces or motivates behavior or decreases behavior. So positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement are about motivating or creating behavior. So it's there's a reinforcer involved And then positive just is, you have to think about it like math, like it's an addition to, so positive you're adding. And then negative reinforcement is more about subtraction. You're removing something to be the reinforcer. So it's not about feeling good or feeling bad or something being good or being bad. It's just, we're just talking like science here. We're just talking very cold, neutral terms. It's positive reinforcement. So the addition of a reinforcer to 
increase the likelihood that a behavior is going to occur again, or negative reinforcement, which is just the subtraction of something to reinforce the behavior. So this is what traditional training, negative reinforcement, pressure and release, that's all negative reinforcement, most of natural horsemanship. And pretty much everything that's out there to this day is really based on negative reinforcement. And again, negative doesn't mean bad. It's just mathematical scientific term. And then we've got positive punishment, which people are pretty familiar with. And it's like when you think of the horse bites you and you smack them, that's positive punishment. You are adding a an aversive, so something unpleasant, to decrease the likelihood of the behavior occurring again. So you're smacking the horse in hopes that it will stop biting. <laughs> Negative punishment is much less thought of or common in the horse world. But it does happen. It is part of learning. It is a thing. Negative punishment is the removal of something that the horse desires as a punisher. The best example I have of this would be talking about maybe kids. If you have two kids fighting over a toy because they both want it, and then you take the toy away and you're like, I'm taking the toy away because you guys won't stop fighting. If you guys you know, stop doing that, I'll give you guys the toy back. But if you're taking away that toy is the punishment, you're trying to punish that behavior of fighting over it in hopes that the behavior will decrease, that they will stop fighting over the toy. So that would be an example of negative punishment. And we see this a lot with kids and humans in general. It shows up a little bit less often in horses though. So yeah, hopefully all that was pretty clear. I would highly recommend people go and do some research on operant conditioning. This is what this is all about, is operant. And it's about learning. It's just the way that we learn. It's just a way that we learn to do more behavior or less behavior. So a really simple example of how we experience this as humans on a day-to-day basis is you know, when you were younger, you probably touched a hot stove and you got burned. That would be an experience, a positive punishment experience. We experience stuff like this, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment every day, all day, all the time. Horses do too. Whether we're in a training session or not, they are experiencing all of this in different amounts and in different ways throughout every waking moment of their lives. And because of that, they're learning to do more of something or less of something. And so it's not so much that positive reinforcement in this, I'll dive into more about what I do in a second. Something like positive reinforcement that I hear a lot of people think of it as like a method, that positive reinforcement is a method. I tend to say that I train with a positive reinforcement focus, meaning that my focus is on utilizing as much positive reinforcement as possible, but it in itself is not a method, just as negative reinforcement in itself is not a method. I'm not going to name different methods, but there are so many different methods out there that all utilize negative reinforcement. It's just a way that horses learn. And same thing with positive reinforcement. The way I utilize positive reinforcement in my training may look very different from how somebody down the road utilizes positive reinforcement in their training. It's just a way that we learn. And so it's not in itself a method. So I started utilizing and focusing on adding positive reinforcement into my training. And that process has gradually increased over the years. I started off with, well, what I thought was lots of positive reinforcement. But now that I've learned more, I realized that I was still mostly using negative reinforcement, but just kind of adding a little bit of positive reinforcement here and there. Now I would say I'm doing a lot better as far as implementing most as much positive reinforcement as possible. I started gravitating towards that because 
of another aspect to it, which is it creates a positive association. So that or a good or pleasant association with whatever's happening. So when I bring positive reinforcement to the table, when I'm training with lots of positive reinforcement, I'm also just happen to be using classical conditioning, which means I'm just creating association. So because I bring lots of good things, I'm showing the horse how to do things in a pleasant way. And you know, I'm just creating that association with myself and with the training that it is going to have a pleasant outcome, that it's going to be good, that they're going to enjoy it, that they're going to have a good experience throughout it. And I'm not bringing a bunch of aversive, so unpleasant things into the training experience. And us being humans and then being horses, we're already kind of at a disadvantage because we're not another horse. We tend to be more of a predator type compared to their prey type. And we're kind of already having to make up for that and building that relationship on top of that. And we want them to start to trust us and to learn that being around us is a pleasant thing, that good outcomes come from being around us. So positive reinforcement really helps with that. And then specifically when I work with horses, I work with a lot of horses that have trauma or negative associations with people or different experiences, different, maybe it's a very specific incident like the farrier or getting into a trailer. And they already have all of that experience under their belt, their learning history that tells them the trailer's bad. We'll use that example. So it doesn't really help very much to come in and start using negative reinforcement, suppression, release. Now I am adding an aversive, so I'm adding something unpleasant until the horse does the thing I want, and then I release or I take away that aversive, that unpleasant thing, and that reinforces the behavior that creates more of it. So if we already have a negative association with the trailer, an unpleasant association with the trailer, and then we're coming in with fresh and release, which adds in more unpleasant to take it away, to create more behavior... It's just not really helping. It's not, we're not classically conditioning anything. We're not creating new pleasant experiences with the trailer. We're just getting the thing done that we want to get done. Yes, it may work, but the horse doesn't look at the trailer now as a good thing. It just is like, well, I have to do it. <laughs> so when I come in with positive reinforcement, though, I can start saying, you see that scary trailer there? It is awesome you are going to love that trailer. You're going to get all the good things when you get in the trailer. It's going to be your best friend. Like I can create such a good experience now with the trailer that the horse wants to jump into the trailer. And it's not because of an or else in quotation marks. Like they want to get in. There's no consequence for not getting in. It's just that the trailer's awesome now. So we want to get in. So in my area of work where I'm working with horses with lots of baggage and trauma and or even just your everyday horse. It's such a powerful tool and it's such an amazing way to work with horses. And then I create, I can help create such a deep experience or a deep um, association with my presence now. I've seen this happen over and over again, where a horse that has worked with me for a while, like my own horses or whatever, I can introduce something new and scary and they're like, oh, the human said it's good. Therefore, it must be because she always predicts good outcomes. So let's go do it. And they're so brave and really confident and they really trust that experience with me. And so it's such, a, it's such an addicting experience, honestly. I don't know how I could do anything else from this point forward. I just really have enjoyed it. Yeah. And honestly, when you were talking about the different things that you're looking to work with with horses, I feel like another huge thing is at least what I see is horses that have had a, a negative association with hoof care. And I see a lot of owners who have a strong desire to 
to work on that and change that association and might not know exactly where to begin or how to make it a better experience. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. Um, And sort of expanding on your explanations in that last question, I feel like there are are some ways that people confuse positive reinforcement. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain the difference between just giving a horse a treat after an event and what is actually training with the expectation of reinforcing a desired behavior. Yeah, that is a great question. So I think a lot of people see me giving food and they in their minds, this is where I started with too. They're doing what they've always done, but then just adding some food afterwards. And so it's more like you're giving treats. So you're utilizing negative reinforcements, pressure and release to do all your normal stuff, but then they did the thing you wanted. So you're like, here horse, here's a a nice treat. Good job. You did great, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it is, but that's different than taking a training approach that is focused on positive reinforcement. And we actually start at the very beginning and shape the behavior we're looking for with the positive reinforcements. So we'll use an example that will be relative to your podcast, so hoof handling. If I have a horse that is learning how to pick up their feet, something that somebody might do that is the first example where you're just giving a treat afterwards is they might reach down, grab the foot and start pulling up on it. And then when the horse pulls up, they stop, put the foot down and give the horse a treat. That's going to be primarily motivated, most likely, we'd have to ask the horse, but most likely motivated through negative reinforcement because that sensation of having their leg pulled up on is a little bit unpleasant. It doesn't have to be bad. It's not like they're traumatized or anything like that. They're just like, ooh, interesting. I don't know if I like that feeling. How do I kind of make it stop? I'm going to try lifting my leg. And then that works and the pressure stops and then you put the foot back down and then yes, you gave them the treat afterwards, which makes it a little bit better because they're like, oh, I get a treat afterwards after I pick up my foot. That's cool too. That would be a different approach though than what I would utilize now, which is I actually will kind of just have the horse standing there and I will look for them just naturally doing their own thing. They might shift their weight off of the foot that I'm looking for. So I'm kind of just setting it all up. I set up the whole arrangement. I get them where I kind of want them. I'm setting them up for success so that they offer me the behavior that I want right away without even barely having to think about it. So they just happen to take weight off of, let's say the left front. And I'm going to go ahead and click and feed. And they're like, hmm, interesting. What just got the click? I need to do that again. And so they're going to think there for a second and I'm going to see a micro shift in the weight off that left front again. And I'm going to click and feed. And so right now, all they're doing is twitching maybe a shoulder muscle. Like it's barely anything. But before you know it, especially with a very clicker savvy horse, they're lifting that front leg up and holding it for two minutes straight and then waiting for you to cue them to put it back down. And you've got a whole trained behavior that was totally trained with positive reinforcement. They're only doing it because of the reinforcer, the positive reinforcer following the behavior. That was the primary motivator for the behavior. Is that kind of the answer you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the horse knows has already been exposed to a clicker or, um, you know, something where they're associating that sound with a reward or a treat or doing the right thing. Yes, that is that's a key thing here. So positive reinforcement by itself does not automatically equal clicker training. The clicker is just a tool. It's a precision tool. It's a tool that helps 
kind of bridge that time gap between when you see the behavior you're looking for and when the reinforcer arrives. Because you can imagine, like, let's say you saw the weight shift, but by the time you grab that food out of your pouch and take it all the way to the mouth of the horse, they're like, okay, that was super arbitrary. Like, they're going to be thinking whatever they did when you fed them is going to be, or when you reached into your pouch, is going to be the behavior that got reinforced while you and your brain were thinking, I wanted that muscle twitch. So the click though can happen that very instant the muscle twitch happened. And if the horse has been introduced to the clicker and understands what it means as a cue, um, so what the clicker itself means, um, they will go, oh, it was the muscle twitch. And then that brought the food and and that's followed by the positive reinforcement. So the clicker helps create a lot of precision and accuracy in the training as a whole. And that has been pivotal in making positive reinforcement more practical and effective as a training approach. And it requires the same sensitivity to timing and the same strategy and maybe even more so than a traditional pressure release, negative reinforcement-based training approach. So timing is really important. Consistency and predictability are really important here too. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned the timing consistency because, you know, my next question was going to be, you know, can we do it wrong? And um, I feel like that what you just said sort of answers that. But, you know, I have had um, owners who are very conscientious and they really want to do something that's going to be a good positive experience for their horse um, and is going to shape behaviors that they want. But, you know, maybe don't have a training background. And I've actually come to their horse to trim and felt unsafe working on their horses because sometimes these horses are so focused on getting a reward that they see me as a sort of a nuisance. Like I'm just in their way to getting their reward that they get if they pick up their foot or if they hold it up for X amount of time. And so I was wondering if there is, you know, is there a way that it can be done wrong and you know, how might we start to change that? 100% it can be done wrong, which is why hand feeding and feeding horses in general, especially like during trims or just training has gotten such a bad reputation is because people have seen it done wrong and it can be dangerous just as anything done wrong can be dangerous. I mean, a farrier trim done wrong can be very detrimental to the horse long-term, their long-term health. And so can training traditionally and with natural horsemanship, all of that done wrong has a poor outcome. So poor training, you know, poor application has a poor outcome. And we are still, this is still so new. And I think a lot of people are very interested in it just as I was, but sometimes there can be a lack of professionals around to help or access information. Now, thankfully we have the internet, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's coaches all over the world that do virtual coaching like myself. And so I can coach people from, all the way across the world and I can help people do it, you know, quote, right. Although of course, like we mentioned before, there's different methods and different ways of doing it. So, you know, different way, different trainers are going to do it slightly different ways, but I highly recommend to people that they seek out professional guidance, at least in the beginning. And then you can go along your merry way after that and do whatever you want and create your own method. That's fine with me, but getting that professional guidance in the beginning is going to be really important but going into deeper into what you mentioned about you being a nuisance and the horse feeling like, or you feeling really unsafe in that experience, this can come from multiple different reasons. Like it can, 
I see this happen when either the horse is being too fed too high a value reinforcer. So they're like really anxious about the food because they're like, I need more, 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 more. And I always recommend to people that they feed the lowest value reinforcer possible. I feed just Timothy pellets. So we're not, this is why I don't say treats. I say food reinforcers um, because people tend to associate the word treats with like, this is pastures molasses cookies, which I'm not opposed to feeding like once in a blue moon, like one cookie molasses we have to be careful with. But that's not what I train with. That's just kind of like, oh, you're such a good pony. Here's a little thing just for funsies. Uh, but what we train with is either like a loose hay, like a Timothy hay, or a, uh, I have coastal Bermuda mostly where I am. Or I train with like a Timothy pellet. Um, for my metabolic courses, I use a lot of celery because it's really low calorie. Maybe I'm using an alfalfa pellet and maybe I'm using some loose alfalfa, but that's about it. I don't train with anything else. And so I'm using something that the horse is just barely interested in and should also have access to for the rest of their day. So their 24 hour day, they should have access to almost the same exact food that I'm training with. And so this really helps keep that edge down and keeps them like really calm about it. Basically, you're just providing them more of their forage ration that day. You're just like, okay, I'm going to use that same hay that was in your hay bale. Let's just stand here and eat it. And you're going to be feeding them. So that can be one aspect to why they are not settled during the farrier appointment is that the handler might be using too high value reinforcer that's getting them too worked up, too excited. It's like trying to get a kid to sit still in school while you're feeding them ice cream. Like it's just not going to work. I have three kids, so I, I have a lot of experience with that. Another reason that might be happening is how the handler is applying the reinforcers. So in what position are they applying them? So are they giving them, offering them? How often are they giving them? I utilize a, a approach called open bar. This was coined by another trainer that I'm drawing a total blank on. But basically I just feed the whole trim. I just back to back feeding, but I'm always feeding in the same exact position. So the horse is able to stand completely still for the farrier, completely relaxed, knowing that the food is coming right back. So it's just like, I'm just like offering more and more food right in that spot, almost as if they had a hay net available to them. They could just sit there and eat it. Um, but if you don't want to use an open bar and you want to feed them more strategically, you would just need to do a lot more preparation with your horse. So having them learn to stand quietly in between reinforcers is really important. And I utilize this throughout all my training for everything. And then to making sure you practice in the same situation you'd put your farrier in. So have a friend, have another uh, horse person come and pick up your horse's feet while you're feeding. And this is huge. You got to practice before your farriers underneath their feet. So they start to learn that, oh, this is what we do in this location and in this way. And these are my cues. And I know the reinforcement is not going anywhere just because this person is picking up my feet. So preparation for the horse is really important. The value of the reinforcer you're using is really important. And then the application of it. So how you're feeding it, when you're feeding it, where you're feeding it, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, some people who are listening to this are going to be brand new to this idea and maybe have never even heard of positive reinforcement. And this is like their first introduction to it. So do you have any tips for introducing your horse to the clicker or whatever, you know, cue they're using without becoming like a cookie monster? <laughs> yeah. So professional guidance is going to be key with anything, you know, any type of training you're looking at any, if you were to get into a new discipline, if you'll say you're a hunter jumper, 
mostly, and you've been riding your whole life doing hunter jumper and you want to get into reining. Um, even if you were a professional hunter jumper trainer, you would still get professional guidance for, from a reining trainer to learn how to ride a reining horse and compete in that, in, in that area, in that discipline. Same thing goes here. It doesn't matter how long you've been training horses for. If you've never picked up a clicker before or used positive reinforcement before intentionally, um, then professional guidance is going to be key to begin with. There's lots and lots of resources. There's lots of free YouTube videos. I've got a couple, more than a couple. I've got lots of videos on social media, but I would definitely still recommend looking into some books. And there's lots of online courses that are really detailed and thorough. Of course, I've got my own, but you know, any any of the reputable trainers would be fantastic. Just somewhere to start. And you can always build, you can always learn from different trainers, just like with anything. So with that being said, though, before you get started, a huge aspect to this is making sure your horse is provided their basic needs, especially when it comes to food and gut health. So making sure they have forage throughout the day and making sure that their stomachs are happy and comfortable are going to be pivotal in making sure that you're setting you guys up for success because we can accidentally step into an area that is, well, I should say this, a lot of people struggle with introducing positive reinforcement and don't understand why it's not working or it's creating quote cookie monsters or whatever when they're following the guidelines that they've been given. And what it comes down to is that their horses are in winter is coming mode. They're in a starvation mode. They are not being provided enough forage. And so they see any kind of food and they go over threshold and they're just like food, 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 food. So we need to make sure that we don't have our horses in that state when we start training with food. That's really important. And then making sure that you're training with something that is very low value. So a Timothy pellet, a Timothy hay, maybe an alfalfa pellet or alfalfa hay, like loose hay, like go grab some clumps of hay out of your round bale kind of thing or your square bales. It's very low value, nothing that's sugary, nothing that's flavored, nothing that's, you know, a treat, like it has a label treat on it. You probably can't use it or shouldn't use it. <laughs> the other thing is going to be the first behavior you should teach any horse, every horse, I don't care how mellow they are or how out there they are, is how to stand quietly with you. That's the first thing I teach all horses is I introduce the clicker. So I'm clicking and then I toss food click, toss food. So they start to pair those two things together. So the click means food is coming. So it just becomes a cue. But then it becomes more complicated than that because I want to start specifically clicking for standing quietly with me. And at first I do this in protected contact. So that means like there's a fence barrier between you and the horse. So some sort of barrier could be a stall door too. Just so you're setting everybody up for safety and success, and it provides that horse with more information. Oh, I'm not supposed to come towards the food because you think about it. Every time they've seen food in the past, it they are supposed to go towards it, and now you want them just to stand there quietly. That's a little bit counterintuitive to the horse, so we need to help them out, and we need to provide them with that information that they're supposed to stay on their side, and you stay over here. And then I just start clicking for standing quietly, and then we build from there basically. It, and there's a lot of steps after that. We, we can go into more complex behaviors. I can teach more complex things like standing for the farrier. Um, that's actually a very complex set of behaviors that we're training. It sounds so simple, but it's really hard. Or not hard. It's just complex for the horse. There's a lot of little pieces to it. And then the other thing I'm going to say is that don't be stingy <laughs> with the food. 
I find a lot of people, they're holding on to this idea that positive reinforcement can be overused or they're feeding their horses too much or they're going to make their horses more muggy by feeding them too often. When we first start working with a horse, I'm looking for that first microsecond that they're standing still. So if they've been moving, 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 and they're, and obviously I've tried my best to set them up so they're standing still naturally. In the very first second, they're standing still naturally, not even a full second, like a half a second or less. I'm clicking feeding. And then as soon as like they bring their head up and they haven't even thought to start moving again, I'm clicking and feeding again. And we, it's very high rate of reinforcement is what that's called. And then from there we build duration. So we build you know, we go from half a second to a full second to two seconds to three. And then before you know it, we could be much like a great, great duration on that behavior. It just depends on how, what your criteria is and how much duration you want for that particular behavior. But I guess just really is low value reinforcer, making sure your horse's gut is healthy, that they're being fed a species appropriate diet and that you're getting professional guidance Start with reinforcing standing still with you and then don't be stingy with how often you're reinforcing to begin with. And then you can build from there. Yeah, that's, that's all great. I mean, those are such clear directions and I think that's really going to be helpful for owners. So thank you so much for, for diving into that a bit too, because obviously we're only there. We only see the horse maybe once a month and, and oftentimes a little bit less than that. So we aren't able to work with them as often as an owner might. So how can an owner prep for a hoof care appointment between trims and maybe work on building timing or foundations to shape longer durations of behavior, you know, holding the foot up longer and that kind of thing. Yeah. So this is so important. I'm a big believer that your barrier is there to do a job. They are there to trim the feet and your job as the owner, caregiver, or trainer is to do the training. So your horse is prepared and set up for success. And so is your hoof care provider. And then through that whole successful process, you are set up for success and you get to have a good experience being the horse owner caregiver. Um, different ways you can prepare for it are by watching your farrier work, your hoof care provider work, and seeing how they do things and just marking those, like taking note of all the little nuances, the nuances, the little cues, the little actions, the little things that your horse is going to be paying very close attention to. Do they put their hand on the inside of the leg or the outside? Do they slide their hand down the leg? Do they put their hand on the fetlock or on the pastern or on the knee? I've seen or the cannon bone. Like where do they cue for the leg to come up? Are they applying any level of pressure to ask the leg to come up? Do they touch the upper body first before sliding their hand down? Do they stand, you know, do they lean over six inches or 12 inches? Do they stand slightly to the left or slightly to the right? Like there's so many different things that go into the trims and the way that you as a hoof care provider, your behavior, the horse is marking all of that. They notice all of that and all of it is a cue. All of it says to them something. It provides them information. So as the trainer or the care provider for the horse, you need to know all of these things so that you can properly train for them and train your horse to be expecting them and to know what to do in the presence of these cues, the behavior of your hoof care provider, and or 
show your healthcare provider how you cue these things. And that can be a conversation you guys can have to set everybody up for success. I have certain horses that you can't touch their body before you touch their leg. It's just due to physical issues, whatever it is, like you do not touch their body before you touch their leg. I've taught my healthcare provider how to do that. We've had the conversation about it and it goes very well from that point forward. But naturally, she wants to walk up to and scratch on the horse's shoulder and then run her hand down the leg and then ask the horse to pick up their their leg. If she does that, though, it could really upset that horse. And this is a specific case where it could just set us all up for failure. and We're going to have a reaction from the horse. But if she just skips that first part and does everything else normally, then it's all golden. So having conversations with your healthcare provider is so important here. But also, we as horse care providers and trainers need to realize that our farriers of care providers are moving pretty quickly through a lot of different horses. So I'm always very cautious to ask them to change their behavior too much because it's too much for them to remember. Like this horse needs it this way. This horse needs it that way. So I try and be as minimal with that as possible. And I try and train my horses according to my farrier as much as I can. So with that being said, having all of that, writing it down, being very detailed about it, and then creating a game plan, a shaping plan according to that. And I find one of the biggest steps here is that you as the horse care provider or the trainer may have a certain trust history with that horse and they be, may be willing to do most all of that for you, but it is critical that they can do it for another person because your farrier only shows up, what, every five to six weeks. And so if you can get another person involved Um, a spouse, a friend, another person at the barn, an older child, something like that to help you, even just to stand there, that can make a big difference for your horse. I find a lot of us are doing our training on our own, myself included. It may seem weird, but I pretty much train and I'm at my facility on my own most of the time. And so it can be weird for my horses to be like, oh, there's another person here today. And that puts them on a little bit of an alert sometimes. So while they will pick up their feet for me and hold it for X amount of time and do all these things, as soon as a second person is involved, everything changes because the cue has changed and the environment has changed. The context has changed. Everything's changed for them. So we need to practice that ahead of time. And then just, you know, like you mentioned, the duration. So taking note, how long does my farrier need to have the hoof for? Well, they need to have it for two minutes. Okay, great. Now I have my criteria. I need to shape holding this foot in my hand for two minutes. And I would probably say just a little bit more because on a bad day, the horse is going to revert back to a shorter duration, a lower criteria. So you want to train for more than your farrier needs so that when things are not so pretty, it still goes fairly well. Yeah. I, there's so many different little things that we have to plan for and train for I could probably spend a whole hour going through each of those. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I'm sure that people can also refer to your more in-depth explanations in terms of getting that exact increase in duration and that kind of thing for help with that stuff. And now, obviously, the listeners here, there's an audience of horse owners and hoof care professionals. And so for those who are actually working on the horse and doing the trims, what can we do while we're under the horse that, you know, the horse will understand what we're asking of them, you know, that falls into the, this foundation that the owner has started to build. Um, I think from a hoof care professional perspective, I think it's, well, 
It's going to vary. So I'll tell you what my trimmer and I do. I do, like I mentioned before, I do the open bar where I'm just feeding throughout the whole trim. And I've prepped my horse for this. They know the drill. They know what we're doing. I've had people practice with me. And then my trimmer arrives and we've had dialogue before we interact with the horse. And I'm talking about in the grand scheme, but also individually per appointment. So I talk to my trimmer first before the appointment begins. I mentioned, hey, you know, like especially if I have a horse that has something like EPM or PSSM or something like that, I would talk to her like, you know, the EPM seems to be flaring up a little bit today. We might struggle a little bit with balance. I've been working with her, but just know, you know, whatever it is. So I'm going to give them an, a quick update during that actual appointment. But I'm also, before we even start working with this horse, so let's say I have a new client's horse come in and I'll have done a bunch of practice with them before I have my trimmer go under them. Like, okay, I've worked with this horse up to this point. I might even show them videos of the training we've been doing so far so they know what to expect and how far we've gotten. I'll tell them, you know, she seems to be comfortable with this, but she struggles with that. You know, so the the owner caregiver really needs to be good with communicating so that you guys can do, the healthcare providers can do their job and be safe. For the average horse, and let's say you've been working on this horse or you know what to expect and you're under their foot, I think just making sure that you follow the agreed upon plan for this horse as far as the behavior goes. So where should you be touching the leg to ask for the horse to pick up the foot? How long should we be able to expect this horse to hold up its leg? There also needs to be agreed upon action should the horse pull their leg away. My trimmer and I have an agreed plan that if the horse pulls its leg away, that they should, that she should let go of the foot immediately. And there are some horses that she could ask them to keep the foot with her. But again, I work with a lot of horses that have passed negative, you know, unpleasant experiences with the trimmer. So it's really important that she lets go of the leg because it could escalate from there. We don't want that to happen. So we have agreed upon actions. Like if the horse were to pull away, do this. If the horse steps away, do this. If the horse were to lash out at her, we have a plan for that. We go through all of that. And so her job really is to do what she does best and then also make sure that, you know, we follow, she follows the plan that we've worked on for that horse. I think the biggest thing is keeping calm and being mindful of your mental state and your nervous system, just making sure you're breathing, making sure you're relaxed, making sure you have an optimistic kind of positive outlook on what's going to happen with this appointment for the horse. The horses pick up on that so easily and you can really make or break a session or a trim on your mental emotional state. And then, you know, communicating back to the caregiver. So there's times where my farrier is under, my trimmer is underneath my horse and the horse is kind of moving around a whole lot and she'll be like, hey, you know, he's moving around a whole lot. Is there something going on? I'll be like, oh yeah. And then, so I'll kind of adjust how I'm feeding or where I'm feeding or I'll ask her, you know, when you get to a stopping point, put the foot down, I'll walk him off and come back. Maybe that'll fix it. So we're, we're constantly having dialogue throughout and, you know, she really gives my horses the benefit of the doubt, which I absolutely so appreciate. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just some things that came to mind. Oh no, it totally does. I mean, just even having that positive outlook, I I've noticed that myself with working with horses that maybe have, um, you know, might be a little bit nervous with the farrier. If I show that, I, or if I feel anxious, the horse is anxious. <laughs> um, yeah. And if I have that same kind of, you know, positive, like this is going to go 
you know, well, or, you know, we're going to work through whatever comes up, then there tends to be a lot better outcome because we're all more calm throughout the whole thing. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in on that same vein, you know, I think one thing that a lot of us as healthcare providers think about are horses that have had that negative experience with a farrier before and how can we make this a better experience in the future? And I didn't know if you had any tips for hoof care providers and for owners that have a horse that might have a phobia of the farrier. Yeah, I think a lot of the recommendations I gave for training for the the horse owner caregiver to do with the horse before the farrier ever arrives are going to apply here. Um, I highly recommend looking into cooperative care. I don't know that we have enough time to dive into it fully here, but I will tell you there's lots of videos on YouTube and I'm also more than happy to refer people if they want to email me um, and I have lots of resources for it. But cooperative care really helps the horse feel not so trapped and not so just put between a rock and a hard place when it comes to having their feet handled and cooperative care applies to like vet stuff. It applies to pretty much everything you could do with horses, but specifically in this case, when we're dealing with feet, I feel like people underestimate how scary of an idea it is to a flight animal to have their foot trapped (laughs) there. We're asking them to pick up a foot, um, which, and hold it for an extended period of time in our hands, which is one, the picking up the foot and holding it for an extended period of time is not something that they do on their own. Like they don't stand out in the pasture and hold up their foot for two minutes straight. Like that would be super weird. I'd be calling the vet. Um, (laughs) So that action on its own requires a lot of muscle and balance and self-awareness and confidence and trust in what's happening. And so practicing that pretty frequently, but then also looking at it in a, from the horse's perspective is going to help so much. I think our first reaction when the horse starts pulling their foot away or doesn't want to stand is to increase the intensity of how we're asking for the foot or holding onto the foot tighter. And all of this screams threat to a flight animal or to really anybody, this would scream threat. It'd scream, um, just like, this is a bad situation to be in. So the horse is probably naturally going to go, oh my goodness, I need to get out of this. So we're actually making the situation a whole lot worse by increasing our intensity around what we're doing, what we're asking, what we're demanding from the horse. So taking down that inadvertent, unintentional kind of pressure we're applying and that goal-oriented mindset around the hoof care taking down all that, like taking down a notch is going to help our horses a lot. So for the professional or for the owner while you're training and practicing in between is going to help so much, especially for horses that have those phobias, that have that fear around having their host handled. The more you trap them into it, the more you insist, the more pressure you apply, even if it's not intentional, even if it's not even so much physical, but through repeating it over and over again by insisting that it happens, you're going to make it worse. So kind of doing the exact opposite of what we want to do is going to help this tremendously. The other thing would be just really trying to make it a positive experience for them. And and I was saying positive in this context as pleasant, as good. This is where positive reinforcement through technical learning terms um, 
really comes into play with that classical conditioning that we talked about, you're going to start associating the arrival of food and just getting food back to back with having their feet handled. So before you know it, it's going to be like, oh, hoof handling, farrier equals lots of good things. My horses think my farrier is the best thing ever because (laughs) it means lots of good food. So that's going to be another step. And then going back to that cooperative care, um, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, horses don't get a say in a lot of their life and in what they do. And I don't know that they're walking around going like, I just don't have a say in things. I'm not saying that, but choice and control. So the ability to choose outcomes, the ability to control their environment, the ability to control outcomes is a primary reinforcer, meaning it is nearly or as valuable as food and water and being able to procreate and all that to our horses. And it is to us too. And if you think about like a lot of people, this is an example I use because a lot of people are afraid of the dentist. If imagine if somebody took you out of your bed, drove you to the dentist, strapped you down and had dentist work done on you and you had no choice in it, no control over the outcome, no say in any of it. And you were just stuck there or else like there'd be a consequence or it'd be really unpleasant for you. Um, that's not going to make your phobia any better. It's going to make it much worse versus, you know, you get to set the appointment. You drive yourself when you're ready. You get to sit in the dentist's office and do your breathing exercises, whatever it is, you know, um, talk to the dentist ahead of time, build that relationship with them. You get to sit in the chair when you're ready. The dentist asks you, okay, are you ready to have this done? This is exactly what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. You may still be a little bit worried, but it's going to help a lot. And then what starts to happen and this is what we do in cooperative care is we do it in small pieces. So at first it's just, let's just go sit in the dentist chair and until you are ready to be done. And then like, we just, and we step back out, like there's no dental work done. We just do this over and over again until you're completely comfortable. And then we go to the next step and then we go to the next step. And the, going back to the horses, there is a specific way we can do this while it's different. It's not the same as with people where I can sit there and explain to the person, you know, I'm going to do this next, whatever. We can do something similar through very strategic training that allows them to piece together behavior. So if this happens, then this happens and this happens. They can be aware of what's happening next enough that they can choose to participate or not. And a lot of people hear this and go, oh, shoot, my horse would never do it then. Why would I do that? They just won't do it. I'll tell you with a hundred percent, like there's been never a case where this hasn't happened for me and for a lot of other people, um, when done well and when done consistently, they become so much more cooperative and they start participating. They start volunteering, volunteering for the experience, even things like shots and blood draws. And we see this all the time in zoo animals. Like they'll do, there's really cool videos on YouTube. You can go look up of like voluntary blood draws from like a tiger. Like they just stick their tail through the fence and you can walk up and take the blood from the tail or whatever it is. Um, And voluntary or cooperative care, like foot care for elephants or giraffes, like if we can do it with lions and tigers and bears, <laughs> we can do it with our horses. And it's so powerful. And they really start to intentionally participate and enjoy the experience. And so it can turn something that is unpleasant into a pleasant experience. So that's going to be my, you know, those kind of things are going to be my recommendations just off the top for people who are dealing with horses with really unpleasant past experiences. And this is something that as a of care professional you can recommend to your clients as well. 
Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting that you talk about the zoo animals because just last week I had the opportunity to go shadow elephant trimming at a zoo. And so there were two elephants there. And um, when we finished the first elephant, working on the first elephant, um, they let her out out of the barn to go into the the turnout paddock area. And we were working on the second elephant. And that first elephant kept coming back in and then wanting to participate again and wanted to be a part of what we were doing again. And I asked, you know, oh, is she upset that we're working on this other elephant? Like, does she, you know, is she trying to check on her? And they're like, no, she just wants, she wants to be part of the training. Like she wants the treats. She wants to be involved. She, you know, um, like they're choosing, they're basically choosing to like put their foot up. I mean, they're totally unrestrained. So they're choosing to put their foot up on this big, like metal looking hoof jack and they stand there. Nobody's holding them there. They just put their foot there and, you know, they hold it there until they're done. And, you know, sometimes they'll put their foot down, but it's never in a dangerous way. It's just like, okay, they want their foot back for a second. And that really impressed me and made me realize, like, wow, we do have so much more potential with horses than I think we give them credit for. Yeah, an example I have personally that's right along those lines is um, My Mare River. We, I put a mat down. I have this very specific mat that it means we're going to do hoof care. And I put the mat down and she runs over to it, stands on it square. So she's also learned that on this mat, we stand square. She stands on it square. We totally, no restraints or anything. We then do all four of her feet. We trim them all. And um, and then she's done and we remove the mat and she goes, she gets to do whatever. But if I put her back in her pen and I start working on the other horses, she gets so really upset. She's like, excuse me, I need to come back out and do. So I have to give her like enrichment activities and things to do. So she's not just itching to come back out, but that's an example of cooperative care and how I have been able to, with repetition and practice, teach her, you know, obviously I don't have, again, that dialogue. I can't talk to her and say, Hey, we're going to do hoof trimming now. But what I can do is pair, just like with the clicker and the food, I can pair this mat equals this outcome. And she obviously really has found it to be a good experience because she sees that mat go down and she just trots right over and she stands on it and she's ready to go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, this, there's so much that we can talk about. I mean, I, I know that there's a million questions that I could ask and I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening have questions and we could talk forever, but I was wondering if you could just share some of the ways that people can learn more about this from you or, or get in touch with you and maybe um, how to access your podcast. Yeah. Um, so the first place to start, I'd say, is my website. It's thewillingequine.com. Um, on there, you'll find a link to my podcast, my blog, my online courses, my different services I offer, and pretty much anything else. There's also an FAQ on there and um, a resources page. So you can go and look at some of the books I recommend and videos and stuff like that. I also have a video library on there so for some videos that you can kind of rent for educational purposes, like one on separation anxiety and stuff like that. Social media wise, it's the willing equine across all. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. What else is there? (laughs) Um, I'm on everything pretty much. And my podcast is the willing equine podcast as well. Um, And yeah, so those are like a bunch of different ways. And you can always email me info at the willing equine.com or there's a contact form on my website And I'm happy to assist anybody who's having 
trouble with their horses. Maybe they've had bad past experiences, or maybe you've got a a young horse that you want to kind of, you know, quote, start the right way. Um, I would love to assist in that. I think there's so much, like you mentioned, there's so much potential here for how we could transform that experience, the hoof care experience for horses that we're just now really starting to get into. And it, it can be such a beautiful experience that everybody really enjoys. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think that this was a really great conversation. I learned a lot too. Um, and I really appreciate you being willing to, to do this with me and have a conversation about this. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.